As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search, match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. This is Two Girls, One Ghost. Two Girls, One Ghost. And we are your ghostesses. That's Corinne. Hello. And I'm Sabrina. And I'm, I think I'm cursed. I know I'm cursed. I have so many things to say that I don't know where to start. Start us off. Well, I'll start with this. So last episode, last regular episode, I believe, I was like, oh my God, I can't believe I didn't talk about Prodigal Son in my episode. (laughs) Yada, yada, yada. And then the day, it was Monday. This was a Monday. I went to Coffee Commissary, which is a place in in Los Angeles that when I was working on Prodigal Son season one, when we were all in person, we would go to Coffee Commissary every afternoon and get coffee. Is it over? It's in the valley. So there's one in Burbank. And when I moved to Santa Monica, there's literally one on the corner of my street. Mm, Okay. And I never really go. I, I kind of stopped drinking coffee when I started working from home. But the other day I was like, I'm going to go get coffee commissary and I'm going to be protective. So I go to coffee commissary and there's this one cookie. It is the best cookie in the world. It's a vegan oatmeal raisin cookie. And, and I, it's so good. I wish you could see my face. It sounds good. My mouth is salivating and you're also hardcore like tw- twitching. <laughs> it's so it. good. But I have now I have a different opinion about it because I only had it on season one of Prodigal Son. And like occasionally I'd get it. And if they had it, I'd be like, oh, my God, Julian, who was our writer's PA at the time, please get the cookie if they have it. So then I go to Coffee Commissary down the street on Monday and I treat myself to a cappuccino. And while I'm there, I see that cookie in the display case and I go, "Mm, I want one of those. And I literally text Nick in all caps. They have the cookie. It's going to be a great day. Fast forward two hours. I get a call saying, I have bad news from my showrunner and Prodigal Son was canceled. So I've cursed myself or someone has cursed me because when I think things are good or when I get excited about things, all of a sudden they're ripped away from me. I just really think that the universe, when bad is coming, they have to even it out. It has to even it out with good. <laughs> Something good. And so I don't think it necessarily was you misidentifying the situation. I think that everything in the universe and your spirit guides or whatever were just like, oh, no, bad news is coming to her. Let's give her the idea to go to this coffee shop so that she can have her favorite cookie. So at least this day <laughs> isn't entirely 
shit. Okay, universe, can I just ask you, you really think a cookie is going to make up for the fact that I am now unemployed and have no income? It's a small start. (laughs) I feel like I'm the universe. It was about the gesture. (laughs) You're answering for me. Thank you. No, no, no. I... I'm I'm staying optimistic, but I'm just bummed because like and now I'm like, well, what if I had been better at promoting our show this past year on our podcast and I got people to watch it? I don't know. No, but you did. You talked about it all the time. It's literally Not on enough. our website. It wasn't enough. That's all I'll say. <laughs> I'm being negative, um, Nancy. Oh, but OK, the second thing I needed to say and Corinne, you will love this. So you've heard this before where I think I am a ghost and you've witnessed it. Where people just don't see me. Well, I witnessed so. someone stare into you and then decide to still ignore you. Which exactly. Was really interesting. So my theory has been proven time and time again. Mm-hmm. So today we're celebrating our friend Lauren just got engaged. So we went to brunch with her and a few other friends and we sit down and I am parched. I just wanted water. But we were ignored for like 25 minutes. Multiple other tables came in. They immediately were like given water, asked like what, for the drinks and all this stuff. We were just completely ignored. And I was like, you guys, I think this is my fault. And I, I told them my theory of how I am a ghost. And so people don't see me or how I just get ignored in situations. And I'm <laughs> not kidding where I was constantly ignored today at breakfast and everyone witnessed it. And there was really? a point where I was asking a question to the waitress and she just kept walking. She just walked away. That's so bizarre. And then I and then I also have a really bad reaction. I mean, bizarre, but not unsurprising. Yes. And and I also have like bad reactions to certain things. So I like I was like gonna ask the waitress and I just looked at Nick and I was like, Nick, I need you to ask for me because I'm not gonna get the answer if I ask. Right. Oh my gosh. So people were witness to it. I have many witnesses. Which then proves that I'm not a ghost because I have witnesses. Yeah. But and I know how big the group was too. Yeah. You have like 15 witnesses. It was five, but close. (laughs) On social media, everything looks bigger. Maybe there are a lot of other ghosts (laughs) with me. I don't know. I don't know. (laughs) Gotta reference the photos again. But my goodness. Oh, I'm sorry. I wish I could do something to make your week better. I wore purple, too. I thought that would help. What color were the walls or the carpet? We were outside. It was green. Did you blend? Oh, There's literally no explanation. There's none. Uh, and I feel like I'm friendly. Here's the thing, too. Now, not to go back to unemployment and remind you of the fact, but fine. while it. you can't reverse time and, and try to promote or do whatever you think might have helped, what you can do is say, hey, you're unemployed, and maybe we have other listeners out there that are staffed on shows in L.A. Okay. So now you can promote yourself. If you want to hire me. I don't know. I tried to do a single ladies thing. And it, if you want to get me by, you got to hire me on your TV show. <laughs> doesn't work as well. Okay, well, you're not a songwriter. No, I will. I will preface that. But if your show has music, apparently you make more money if you have the right songs for TV shows. So, Oh, interesting. I've actually been saving people's audios on tiktok because i have this fantasy that we eventually have a television show in the future and i get to curate and expose all of these like wonderful small artists and it's all from tiktok 
<laughs> it's not Fun. real. It's like, you know, when you used to take a, a bath or maybe this was just me, but I'd be in the bath and I'd have like a full 90 minute pretend conversation with one of the TV hosts. Like I was on Ellen or I was on Oprah or someone was that interviewing me. That is the most like, <laughs> you thing I've ever heard. <laughs> Sitting on the couch. It's the so funny because that is so on brand for you. Whereas for me, I'd sit in the bath and be like, someone's watching because this is all a simulation and I am actually a sim in someone else's game. <laughs> oh man. It's fitting for both of our personalities. It's so fitting, which is why I'm invisible because I'm a sim. Maybe, maybe you are an alien though. Bloop, 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 blah, 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 bloop. <laughs> that's, that's something an alien would say. And you'll never understand it. <laughs> it's my own language. Um, not alien related, but mm-hmm. I went to Brimfield Antique and Flea <gasps> Show. And you showed it off on our Instagram. On our Instagram. Well, you know, honestly, that was like the tail end of it. I I was so caught up in in the show. I keep calling it a show. Essentially, I've never been before. So this was my very first time. And so I'm sure people are going to be like, oh, girl, old news. You're barely (laughs) getting half of this right. But it's one of the largest, if not the largest uh, antique show, at least in New England. And it happens Mm -hmm. every year. And it runs for like about a week, three times a summer. So there's one in May, there's one in July, and there's one in September. Last year, it was canceled. I was going to go last year. This year, it's on for July and September. But like 95% of it was canceled for May. So there are all of these fields and the fields are sponsored by whoever. And then there's, I don't know, between 50 and 300 vendors set up on each field in Brimfield, Massachusetts, which is close to the Connecticut border. And so you have, you have like, I I can't even begin, 10,000 tents to potentially go to. So I'm actually glad that I went when it was just one field. There were, I think, 300 tents set up what? because I was able to do Even that's it. a lot. Yes. So one day, like a full day, I was able to hit every single tent and explore every tent. So I was like, this is a great introduction into Brimfield because I'm sure if I had just arrived when there were 15 different fields, I would have been like, where do I go? But it's incredible. And I wow. went with my friend Allison who... She runs a, a page on Instagram and and on TikTok where she, cause her, one of her friends and her, they collect uh, vintage clothing and jewelry and all that stuff and and sell it. If Well, I think they keep the majority of the pieces for themselves. <laughs> but sometimes they're like, ah, I guess I can let someone else if enjoy this. If they don't want it for themselves, they sell it. Or if it doesn't fit perfectly yeah, for their yeah, body yeah. types because they'll, they'll pick up cool pieces. If it's cool, they just want to buy it. So I yeah. loved going with her because we were very attracted to different things. Like she was finding vintage purses, going through all the trinkets and jewelry and Whoa. and costumes and clothes. And that was awesome. And then I, on the other hand, was like, I bought a, I bought a dresser. I bought a cabinet and it's beautiful. It is this beautiful green cabinet. There's three different tiers to it and they're stackable. So you can remove them and the... Whoa. They pull up each of the drawers. I, I'm doing a terrible job at describing yeah, this. Yeah, I can't. You have this under pictures. Yes. And I can put it on our Instagram in three weeks because right now I'm moving. So things are wrapped up and it's not going to be cute until then. But anyway, I picked up Again. that. I picked up a few um, little drinking glasses that are supposed <gasps> to be, I think, for like a after dinner 
palette. Yes. But I want to use it to put candles in. And then I got these beautiful chalices, like wine chalices (gasps) that are amber colored. They're from 1880. Wow. I cannot wait to drink out of those with you. They're beautiful. And I, I had one rule for myself that I told Allison as we were entering the field. I said, because there's potential for all of these objects to be haunted, I will yep. not buy something unless I'm absolutely obsessed with it so that if it comes with a spirit attached to it, they will feel happy that it's with someone who just cherishes it as much as I do. That's very fair. So I got a few things, but oh my gosh, it was so great. They had, they had everything. Like If wow. you say an object, they had it. See, that's the type of – I saw you posting those on our Instagram and I immediately got really jealous and angry because I was like, <laughs> why didn't Kryn invite me? <laughs> it's like I live across the country. You live, okay, your we shit. can go next year. I know. I just – it's one of those things that like I feel like – and I'm sure there are similar type of events in – Los Angeles and California area. You have the Melrose Trading Flea Market post I, thing. Yes. Right there. But but I I will say it's a little bit je ne sais quoi. It is um it has a it's not as authentic, I think, as somewhere like Massachusetts. Because Los Angeles is I don't know. I just feel like everything is more expensive and it's more expensive and like as someone who's been to the Melrose Fairfax Flea market, whatever. I can, I'm blanking on the name, but it's on the cross streets of Melrose and Fairfax. Fairfax. Um, there's a lot that people are just, it's kind of like a mix of if you took an, an antique, uh, business with an Etsy shop and blended it together because there's a lot of makers there as well. And you can upcharge so much in Los Angeles and like, and I'm not saying it doesn't deserve to be that, but it doesn't feel as authentic as a, like in the middle of Massachusetts. On the Connecticut border type of situation. And not to say that you'd miss out by not going, but you would because not only are all of the antiques and the shows and just the whole general experience amazing. And I only went to one field out of the many, many, many that are supposed to actually be there and will be there in July and September. But the people walking around are authentic. Like I was looking around it and I was like, any one of these people could be on any one of the antique roadshow sort of shows out there i had no idea everybody looked like a treasure hunter everyone looked like they knew way more than me and people yeah people came with carts like people were ready to shop they're ready okay well i'll be ready next year as humans we're naturally driven by the search for better but when it comes to hiring the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all don't search match with indeed when i was looking to hire someone it was so slow and overwhelming I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Alrighty. I'm excited about this one. Me too. And I think because you went first last time, I should go first and we'll just continue on the, the swap. 
okay, I agree with you, but then I started trying to make that change in our Excel and it was a lot of work. Yeah, because I went I went far in scheduling our Excel sheet. Yeah. Our schedule. So up to you. If you're down to like try to remember that when it says Corinne I'll first, fix it. I'll Sabrina fix first. It. Don't you worry, Sabrina. Well, we decided that our topic would be London. We added this to our list a long time ago. We were like, you know what? Europe and so many other parts of the world have so, so many hauntings and really old buildings. And London is just one of those places that I think comes to mind a lot. And we see a lot of stories from London. Mm -hmm. So I chose to cover 10 Bells Pub. But before I tell you about 10 Bells Pub, I'm going to tell you that this haunting actually starts with Jack the Ripper. (gasps) Shut up. (laughs) (laughs) Jack the Ripper is an unidentified serial killer who was active in East London specifically in the Whitechapel district around 1888. He was also called the Whitechapel murderer and leather apron. But Jack the Ripper was the name that really stuck and the name that we all know today. And he would target areas that were a bit lower income, often preying on sex workers and always women. So the killer, whoever this be, whoever Jack the Ripper is, would then cut and mutilate their throats and abdomen, and he would remove organs. And the injuries or the incisions were done in such a way that led many to believe that the killer had some sort of surgical or anatomical knowledge because it was cleaner. There was knowledge of of where to find things and, and how to take them out slightly cleanly out of a body. Yes. Can I do a real quick pause? Yes. So, Corinne, I don't know if you watched the Sons of Sam documentary yet. I started it. I was like 15. I'm only like 15 minutes in, to be honest. Okay, so it's four episodes, so you have quite a way to go. But in the documentary, they talk about how it's so bewildering because Jack the Ripper killed five people, five women, which is not to say Mm -hmm. that's not a lot because it is, and it's devastating and heartbreaking. But there's this, like, fascination about, like, who is Jack the Ripper? He killed so many women. But then you look at people like Son of Sam and other serial killers in history, and they've killed so many more people. But Jack the Ripper, because I think the time and the era and the mystery shrouded around who he possibly could be is so infamous. Right. And it's not like they had forensic evidence. It was 1888. Mm-hmm. It was just like, I think there was a body there. And that was yeah. the that was the evidence. Like they did not have much to go on at all back then. And also no. it's terrifying. And let's remember, too, that news travels back then uh, – a lot of the news was traveling by mouth, so the gossip was probably astronomical in terms of what was what was going on. And it's not like there was CCTV footage. Like, there's just, it, yeah, it had to have been terrifying. It's such a different time in life, yeah. Right. So news of this killer, news of Jack the Ripper, was everywhere. It took over the UK. It was terrorizing residents in London who feared that this unidentified murderer could have been their their brother, their dad, their local shopkeeper, whoever this was, was just walking freely amongst them. Mm-hmm. And their fear was definitely for good reason. So there are a few. So while there were five victims that are are confirmed to the best of experts ability as to be yeah. like five victims of this person, there were a few more, but I'm going to go into just a couple of the cases. So at 6 a.m. on November 8th, 1888, Annie Chapman's lifeless body was found badly mutilated. She was 47 years old at the time. The deep slash wounds that were in the throat of Annie Chapman 
were very similar to the slash marks that were found a week earlier on victim Mary Ann Nichols. The blade and the design, they seemed to be the same to the best of the ability of the authorities. Uh, Mm -hmm. And the blood splatter, the mutilation, the deep blood stains, all of this were very similar. So the MO, the pattern seemed to be established. And this murderer was dangerous. And then just one day later, so Annie Chapman was found at 6 a.m. on November 8th. Just one day later, Mary Kelly is leaving the area right in front of the 10 Bells. So the 10 Bells is a pub that's only about a 10-minute walk from where Annie Chapman's body had been found the day before. So this little circle is already starting to be identified, this small little uh, area of where these bodies are being found Mm -hmm. and where people are being picked up and murdered. So... Mary Kelly, she leaves the 10 Bells, and she didn't live too far from the pub, so she just decides that she's going to walk home, as she normally did. She was a sex worker, and she often met her clients outside of the 10 Bells. So she's heading home, and it's believed that just one minute into her walk, she met a man. And this man would end up walking her home and would be the last person to see her alive. The next morning, Mary's landlord sent his assistant over to collect overdue rent from Mary. And when there was no answer at the door, the assistant decided to go around and peer into one of the broken windows and essentially grab her attention and be like, hey, just because you're ignoring us doesn't mean that you can't not pay rent. This isn't a solution. But when Mm -hmm. the assistant goes around to essentially catch and uh, confront Mary hiding in her home, which is what the assistant thought was happening... That is when he sees Mary and she's laying on her bed and her body is mutilated and there is blood everywhere. Okay. Was the guy who brought her home investigated? They don't. It was Jack the Ripper. I know. They don't know who it was. Oh, they don't know who it was. No. I thought you said a name. No, no. They don't know who exactly this was. But the only reason they knew that there was a man walking with her and who had who had gone home with her is because there were witnesses. So police Mm. immediately began their investigation. They found a few witnesses who helped piece together Mary Kelly's night. And a woman also named Mary. There's a lot of Marys in this story. This is what I say about the 1800s. It's all the same name. I know. Everybody's John. Everybody's Mary. Uh, But another woman named Mary Ann Cox, she'd known Mary Kelly for just shy of a year because the two of them lived in the same apartment complex. And Cox had spotted Mary that that night the night that Mary was eventually killed and stated that Mary looked very intoxicated and she was walking with this short, stout and shabbily dressed man who was carrying a beer in his hand. So presumably someone who was either just leaving the pub or was right outside of the 10 bells or inside of the 10 bells. We don't really know, but he was carrying a drink. So the thought is that the connection started right in front of Mm. the 10 bells. And that was the, that's all that Cox saw. So that's what she told investigators. And then uh, when Cox eventually made her way home after leaving for the evening after seeing Mary, uh, she came home at 3 a.m. and she didn't hear anything suspicious. So to her knowledge, that's all that happened. No noises were coming from Mary's apartment. However, another witness, Elizabeth Prater, said that she heard a suppressed cry and a woman say, oh, murder, at around 3.45 a.m. And then another woman, Caroline Maxwell, heard a woman yell, murder, oh. around the same time that uh, the other witness, Elizabeth, had heard that. And Caroline, when she heard someone say murder, 
she looked out and she saw this portly man in a black hat standing in the courtyard. So presumably the same person that Marianne Cox had seen Mary Kelly walking with earlier in the it evening. It is confusing, though, because, like, who was the one saying murder? Because it's a woman's voice. But I know. But the way that I was thinking of it is maybe maybe Mary came to the realization that he was there to murder her. And she just, right. like, she was shocked and was like, murder? But then he wouldn't be seen at that same time out in the courtyard. He would have been in her bedroom. True. See, this is why it's it's not solved. There's too many pieces that... This is why I should have been an investigator back in the 1800s. You should have been Sher- Sherlockica. <laughs> Sherlockica. <Holmes. laughs> <laughs> That's your name. And everyone would call you Kiki. Kiki. Kiki for short. Or Kika. I like that name, actually. <laughs> Writing it down in your notes section of baby names. <laughs> yeah. Pretty soon I'm going to have a dog named Sherlockica. <laughs> But the mystery remains. We don't know what happened. And whoever killed Mary Kelly also had a lot of time on their hands and had taken time killing her, which is another reason why it's it's unknown when the when the murder actually happened. But it's thought that it must have happened after 4 a.m. because if people heard the words murder and then had seen Mary and the guy a few hours earlier and she was alive, then there had to have been some sort of window between that time and then right. the potential of it being after 4 a.m. if Mary herself was actually saying murder. Right. We don't or know. Or is there a but witness, a third witness that no one knows of? That's too afraid and doesn't want to say yeah. anything? It's it's possible. And maybe that witness was another one of Jack the Ripper's future victims. And so there wasn't the opportunity. Exactly. So they never got to speak. But whoever killed Mary had some time because... A knife over six inches long was used not only to murder her, but then to mutilate her so badly that experts estimated that the injuries <gasps> took about two hours to inflict on her body. No. And the markings on her throat and her body and the blood splatter, they all matched the crime scenes of the other two people and basically the MO of who they believed to be Jack the Ripper, this unidentified serial killer. Jeez. So between a three-year span in London, there were 11 similar murders, but five of them happened within a nine-week period, which led the public and police to believe that this one killer was most definitely responsible for at least these five. So it's possible that any of the other murders on the other ends also could have been done by Jack the Ripper, but there was a nine-week span in this bubble of a location in East London where Jack the Ripper just ripped through and murdered women. And this is now referred to as the canonical five. So the if you hear that, that's referring to Jack the Ripper's five victims in this nine-week span, these five women. It's so interesting because I feel like in that era, and granted, uh, what do I know? I'm not a historian. I don't, I didn't live then. Maybe I did in a past life, but currently I did not live then. I'm not a vampire. It does make me, I just feel like that era in Europe was rampant with murder and death and poisoning. And I also just read a book called The Lost Apothecary, which I highly recommend. But it is all about like poisoning. And and I think, well, this is more like the late 1700s before um, autopsies were performed and like able to like test like what chemicals and stuff are in the body. But like, I feel like a lot of people were being murdered back then. Yes. Who was that one woman? I'm not going to remember her name, but there was one woman who was eventually murdered But she was, well, I guess people could argue that she was, like, tried for her crimes and executed. 
but she would uh-huh. give housewives she would just provide women with a lethal dose of poison that was basically marketed as something else. So it was like, you know, for clothing or for laundry or whatever. And the women would use it to to kill off their abusive husbands. And that was like that is basically the concept yeah, of the book. And there that were I like three hundred men who died because of it. I might be like grossly yeah. overestimating, yeah. but I, I just read something on this recently. Yeah, there's so many murders. And I also think of like, I also think of the just in the history of royalty and the kings like beheading their wives and just like the church versus state and who had power and just it was so easy to whoever had more power at the time. It was like, well, whoever's trying my power, I will behead and like kill. And even though they went through a trial, it was just like, let's just kill them. And it was what's terrifying about living in that time is that everything was out to get you. If your chances of survival were so low because if you take into consideration the chances of survival through adulthood just with illnesses and disease, and then <laughs> on top of that, add all the people exactly. that potentially murder you, acu- false accusations, just all of the- Witchcraft, danger- like everything. Yes. Like, uh, the fact that our ancestors lived and reproduced- yeah. <laughs> That we exist is it is bewildering. It is. I just picture everybody in the middle of the desert killing in battle, just like ah. it's the purge. It does feel like the purge. It does. I mean, granted, if we time traveled back, maybe it wouldn't feel like that. But right retrospect, it does. Yeah. So Jack the Ripper, he was never caught, and there were a few suspects. There were many theories and hundreds of letters from people claiming to actually be the murderer. And there were even a few letters that experts believed may have been written by the real killer. And one of them contained the ear of a victim. So they were like, this has to have been sent by Jack the Ripper. But they didn't know who sent the letter. And no one was ever held responsible. They never found who this murderer was. There was no evidence to convict, uh, evidence to link anyone to the crime. And the killer ran free. A killer who, by now, luckily for all of us who are currently alive, uh, is dead. Because that yes. was in 1880. And unless he's a vampire. <laughs> and that guy got away with murder. Whoever that guy was. With the black top hat. The portly man who everyone seemed to see. What if he's now the shadow or the hat man? What if the hat man is one singular person in this Jack the <gasps> Ooh, I get chills. <laughs> well, here's, we need to trace back the very first sighting of the hat man and see how far we can go. And if it's oh. if it's pre-1880, we know that not to be true, but if it's post-1880 and we can't go any further back in time, further. it very much could be. We we will be published. We will win a Pulitzer Prize. And okay, this makes a lot of <laughs> sense though, because here we go, conspiracy theories. Because the hat man is known to be passed down through generations, familial hauntings. And so what if Jack the Ripper is so upset that he didn't get the opportunity to murder more people? And there's certain families that were on his list of targeted people, but the police were getting too close and he had to give up. And so now he's like, oh, you shouldn't exist. I should have killed your great, great grandmother all those years ago. And now he's just. That is so dark. (laughs) But. And I say that from from a person who is very morbid and dark, but that is dark. Sorry. <laughs> I mean, I don't know. It's hard to know. Anything goes. Anything goes. <laughs> All right. But there is one piece of evidence that maybe could help identify who this person is. And that is that Jack the Ripper may have been a patron at the Ten Bells, the local pub. 
because Annie Chapman was found not too far from there, 10 minutes from there. And it was widely mm-hmm. believed that she or widely thought that she had had a drink there the night before and, and likely met someone there. And then Mary Kelly frequented the outside of the pub to meet her clients. And so there's one pub, two murders and a 48 hour span. So yeah. the link is suspicious and it's it's kind of like, OK, well, was Jack the Ripper a regular at the Ten Bells? Did he just kind of get lucky with Annie and then go back to see who else he could capture in the darkness outside of this pub? Did anyone remember seeing the same man at this pub back to back nights? Who knows? The mystery of Jack the Ripper remains as such. But there's one thing that we know for sure, and that is that the Ten Bells pub is now haunted. And this pub is Old And it's clearly seen a lot in its time. I mean, it had it lived through Jack the Ripper and two people who had been inside of the pub had been murdered within 10 hours of being inside of that pub. So a lot has happened on the grounds and around the property. It was first opened back in 1752. And for a brief decade in the mid to late 90s, it actually did have a name change. They tried to call it the Jack the Ripper. But then they decided to change it back to the Ten Bells. Yeah, that's in poor taste. Yeah, I agree. Although the inside of it is very much uh, dedicated to Jack the Ripper and the crimes and the mystery. Oh. Uh, so they got what they wanted without making it yes. sound tasteful right. wrong. So, okay. So the Ten Bells is the name that it had through the majority of its of its life, of the building's life standing there. But originally mm-hmm. it was called the Eight Bells Ale House. And this was because there was a church nearby that had eight bells. But then... About two decades into it being named that and built back in 1752, uh, the church actually installed new chimes and then it was 10 bells. And so they're like, okay, well, we don't want to be accurate with the church. That's our whole vibe. And so they changed their name for accuracy to the 10 bells, which is now what it's essentially been called for about 300 years. Whoa. And like the name, not much else has changed. A couple adjustments and rebuilds for upkeep have been done, but the majority of the interior of the Ten Bells is the same. The walls are decorated with info about the victims, theories, newspaper clippings about Jack the Ripper, and this makes the pub a very popular spot for thrill-seekers, historians, and curious murderinos to see what it was like to drink there a few centuries ago and maybe try to solve the mystery themselves. But it also makes it awfully comfortable for a few old souls. They don't have to adjust to modern times because they're living just as they did 300 years ago. So Annie Chapman, who was one of the victims that was found 10 minutes away from the 10 Bells, is reportedly spotted in the pub and around the building. So patrons and staff, they feel gusts of wind and noticeable things moving around as well and actually see her. Um, But all of those other things like the wind and everything, maybe it's not caused by Annie because there are a few other spirits there as well. In the 1990s, staff at the Ten Bells would often encounter a spirit of a man who was dressed in old Victorian clothing. And the sights were often on the upper floors of the pub, uh, but it extended outside of the pub as well. So if you worked there, yes, you may see this guy, this spirit on the upper floors of the pub, but you also might wake up with an uneasy feeling, turn over in the night and see this same man from the pub laying next to you. And then he would just immediately disappear. 
Oh, yeah. he follows he you. He followed people. And so obviously this was terrifying for the staff. They were being stalked by this man and nobody could explain who he was or why he was there and why he suddenly popped up and why everyone was seeing him in the 1990s. Whoa. But the mystery was solved in 2000 when a new landlord took over the building and he went downstairs to the cellar. He was going to clean it out. And he found this old antique metal box tucked away in the corner, almost hidden. He opened it, and inside were all of these items that appeared to belong to this man named George Roberts. And creepily, there was actually a wallet with newspaper clippings inside about George Roberts' (gasps) Roberts murder. George had been murdered with an axe while at a cinema, and he had also been the previous landlord to the pub. When shown who this, all the info of this man, this murdered old landlord from the box, the staff had confirmed that that is who they had been seeing. Whoa. So this old landlord just started haunting all the staff. Maybe he didn't like the way that they were running the business anymore. I don't know. But while George seemed to enjoy the top floor of the pub, another spirit resides there as well. It's a spirit of a baby. So a psychic had been asked to come in. And she was making her way through the building, but when she got to the top floor, she stopped. She stopped right in front of this one room, and she felt terrible, and she refused to go into the room. She said something terrible happened in there. She felt a child. She felt murder. She felt 19th century. So she was like, okay, back in the 1800s, a baby was killed here, and I refuse to go any further. I'm not going to go into this room. This is a hard no for me. And so that's all the info that they had for a while. And they were just like, hmm, interesting. Fast forward many years and a leading expert in Jack the Ripper, Lindsay Siviter, is now at the pub and she's taking a tour. So she asks to come to, you know, get to know a little bit more about Jack the Ripper and and do her own research. Uh, And she's up on the roof and she notices something behind the water tank and she asks about it. And so her and whoever was with her accompanying her on the tour, they go over to investigate. And behind the water tank is a sack. And inside of the sack is a set of molding Victorian era (gasps) baby clothes. No. With a knife mark cut through it. And this water tank sat directly above the room that the psychic years in previous years had refused to go into. So she was right. There was a murder of a young, young child from that era and there are clothes with a knife slash through it to prove it oh my gosh but not all experiences are thought to be not that not that the spirits are not that the experiences and the things that happened there were benevolent or were okay to deal with there's definitely a lot of crime and murder and horrendous things that happened to people there but for the most part the spirits are are chilling like it's never it's never exciting to wake up with a man next to you in bed that you didn't invite and who is dead (laughs) um but no one had harm to them for the most part but right which is nice yes but there is a but type of haunting there there is a but because one tenant who was living in the building reported hearing footsteps and laughter in the hallway outside of his room and he would go he'd open the door to investigate and he was all alone and he also reported that when he would walk down stairs to the bar, occasionally he would feel the push of an invisible hand as if someone was trying to shove him <gasps> down the stairs. Oh. So no one really knows. so intense. It's very intense. And I'm like, okay, well, no one knows exactly who these spirits are or the reason for them being there. 
aside from identifying George and who's thought to be Annie, one of the victims of Jack the Ripper. But of course, when there are areas where so much has happened, the energy is different. And we talked about this all the time where not only could regular spirits be there, but also negative entities can be attracted when there's something off and when something horrendous happens. So potentially there could be some sort of poltergeist in the making there. But I also can't help but wonder if maybe this one guy, because I didn't hear any other reports of anybody else getting touched or pushed or anything. I wonder if this one guy had a resemblance to Jack the Ripper and maybe Annie's spirit was hoping to protect themselves or another woman in the building and was just feeling this sort of aggressive reaction to someone who reminded her of her killer. But that's a theory. Right, right. Or what if it was actually someone related to Jack the Ripper? Yeah. DNA test. Gotta gotta test it out. Test it out. How weird, too, to think. That would be very uh, coincidental. What's, like, the opposite of serendipitous, where it's, like, it's not serendipity because it's something horrible, but the connection is just Um, so shocking? Well, now that you said coincidental, it's all I can think of. Yeah. But to think that that person was living in the building upstairs of this pub that unknowingly, like, a ancestor of theirs over a hundred years ago murdered people in. Yeah. It's one of those things where, because there are so many people who have done insane amount of research on Jack the Ripper and the theories and people who they think it could have been that I wish that we could. And I know this is like kind of dark, but I wish that you could like dig up a body and do a DNA test and like confirm the theories or hypothesis. But I know that like after a certain amount of time you decompose, you know, so right. it's not possible anymore. And also back then, like were they even saving any blood or any of that stuff? Cause they didn't have the technology that we have today. No, they weren't saving the majority of evidence. I mean, even think about today, the chances of someone actually being, I think with everything that we have today, you would assume that it would be difficult to get away with murder. But I think the statistics are that you're more likely to get away with it than than not. Right, right. And so we have so much technology, huge advancements in forensics, videos, witnesses, social media, all of this communication Back then, nothing. People, I'm sure they weren't even looking at the shoe prints and matching footprints. No, and I mean, just on the the very little research we've done, like there are stories, there was that one story of a guy who dressed up as a ghost and people truly thought a ghost was haunting their town and then they found out that it was a person, but then it continued Mm -hmm. to happen many years after he passed away. Like it just, yes, it was one, it was a road. There was a specific road, right? Yeah, yeah. So it's just oh, interesting, like, it? you know, it's one thing where it's like, oh, well, we we found this one time it was a guy dressed up as a ghost. But that doesn't mean you can answer all the other times. But you want to be able to have that explanation because you don't mm-hmm. want to believe that it's something else or someone else. Right. And two, I think the other thing, and this is entirely just a question for other people. And I, I would assume we probably have a few listeners that are maybe working mediums and and can give an answer. But when spirits are kind of trapped in this in-between where they're, whether it be them physically being trapped or or their own will to not move on, Mm -hmm. someone like Annie Murphy, let's just say she is haunting the 10 bells and her spirit is 
trapped there. Does she still get all of the knowledge that we assume you get when you pass over to the other side? Or is there some sort of distancing where spirits can be kept confused and may not have all the answers of the universe like we think people will get when they die and pass over? Like, what if she has no idea what happened to her? That's weird. That's uh, that's so sad. Yeah. What's the information? How does it pass? Why do some ghosts have more information than others? Yeah, exactly. That's the question. Okay. Well, this brings me back to the fact that I want to be an intern for <laughs> the the person who knows all of this. This just reminds me of Beetlejuice. You know how there's the receptionist? <laughs> yeah. I would like I to be like the receptionist. Be <laughs> Love it. So when I think of London, and even based on your story, mm-hmm. I think fondly upon pubs. Like it just like you think London, I think pubs. And I always think fondly back upon a time when I was underage in the United States, but of drinking age in the UK. And I, <laughs> along with a few friends from high school, and it was like the year before I went to or moved to Los Angeles for college, we were in London and we were there for a high school fringe festival, which we eventually went to Scotland story for another time. But we were in the streets of London and we would like stumble through the streets and like find little pubs and stop in and drink beer. And like, you know, at that time I thought beer was disgusting, but I thought drinking beer was really cool. So like we would go to all these pubs and it was really fun. And there was something. So I'm just going to keep speaking French, even though I don't know. It was, there was something so je ne sais quoi about a cold beer in London. And still there is. But it was like very what a girl wants and also felt like you're stepping into a part of history and sharing a moment with the ancestors. So as time passed, I grew up and I grew a taste and an appetite for beer and like the taste and the quality of it. So in 2019, my dad got married in Croatia and in order to fly home, Nick and I had to fly from Croatia to London, then to Los Angeles. But on our flight home, We got stuck on our plane in the split airport for two hours and therefore missed our connecting flight that was supposed to take off from London to Los Angeles. And so we arrived to London Heathrow knowing that we missed our connecting flight and we were informed that there was no other flight options that day. And of course, we were like, oh, my God, I had just started my first job as a staff writer. I was like, oh, my God, what am I going to do? They're going to fire me. They're going to hate me. And then I was just like, people are going to think that I like I intended for this to happen and wanted to take another day off, but didn't ask for it. Anyway, I quickly got over that because I was just like, you know what? We're stuck in London. Worst things have happened. So mm-hmm. Nick and I decided to go get a hotel room for the night and spend the next 24 hours until we can get a flight home from London to LAX. Spend the whole 24 hours in London. I mean... Truly, that sounds amazing. Yeah, you got to explore for a full day. So we took the train to our hotel and we walked through the rainy streets in our Croatian best because, to be honest, I packed for Croatia, not London. So I literally only had sandals (laughs) and like shorts and summer dresses and it was pouring rain the whole time. So we took a quick shower at the hotel and we recharged and then we headed back out for some nourishment, stopped for some cocktails and went to Harrods, tried on engagement rings at Tiffany's and then (laughs) again found ourselves drenched by the rain and again famished. So we were like, let's get some food. And it was probably like 10 p.m. at this time. So I was like, if we're going to get some food, like let's do something authentically London and the UK, like let's go to a pub. So I did a mm-hmm. quick Google search, let's go, you know, a pub, and many of which were closed because it was a Tuesday. Or no, I guess it was a Monday. 
But it was 10 p.m. and I was like shocked that everything was closed. Anyway, there was one by the name of the Grenadier that caught my eye. And it was walking distance from where we were at that time. And truly a cold beer and some like really heavy pub food sounded delightful. So we went, we embarked upon this new journey and found ourselves walking along quiet streets into an alley. And it was like truly like stepping into a different time. But you know how like people say they were walking on a street and then someone came walking in like a corset in a different era period clothing? Yeah. That I felt that didn't happen to me or to us. But when we were walking on this specific little alley, it felt like that would have that could have happened. It was a possibility. It was so quiet. The street felt so quaint and everything felt like from a different era. And we were like, are we going the right way? Is it open? What's happening? Are we going to die? Are we going to get abducted <laughs> by aliens? I don't know. But then finally, we found it. The Grenadier. It was this like tiny, quaint white building with blue window accents and a red door and like very beautifully grown floral arrangements. And I was like, yes, this is uh, this is better than I, what I wanted. So we walked up the steps and opened the door and... As if the alley wasn't enough of like stepping into a different time, walking inside was even more like that. It felt like we walked into Christmas, which for some reason, when I think of London, I think of Christmas. So maybe that's just in my own head. But the furniture and decor were like super Victorian and aged. And there was like leather. There was a low hum of chatter and then the clicking and clanking of dishes and glassware from the kitchen. But all of that faded into the background when I noticed that the ceiling was covered in money. Bills from all over the world with writing on them. So, I mean, immediately I was like, I need to know everything about this. Yes. Wait, I have a I have a strong memory of you talking about this place. Exactly. So there was, after we got back from our trip in Croatia, Nick and I, or I told you about this very, very briefly on the podcast. Mm. But I decided to do some real searching and I'm also going to tell like my version of the story and then I'll tell you the history of that I found while researching. But so when we got there, we were like, I need to know everything. And the guy, the barkeep was like, oh, we're not serving food anymore. And the whole point of this was like, I was starving. So we went in search of food and a beer was like the bonus. But when we walked into this place and the guy was like, oh, we're not serving food. I was like, well, that's OK. We can stay because I need to know more. <laughs> and so we sat down and we had a cold beer and the bartender told us about the story of the place and he told us that the grenadier as it is now called is famous because there's the ghost of a soldier who is named cedric who haunts the bar and many many years ago cedric frequented the pub and would come to gamble unfortunately cedric was a terrible gambler and lost a lot of money and resorted to cheating but cedric apparently was not a great cheater either because one night his comrades quickly caught on to his antics and beat him to death since that time cedric's ghost has been seen wandering the grenadier unable to pay his debt which is why guests since that time have started to pin money to the ceiling of the pub and they like write on it saying to cedric from whoever it's from and it's all in hopes that one day cedric will be able to pay off his debt and be free so nick and i are like in love with this story. The bartender tells us the story. We keep sitting there and we're like looking everywhere like, oh my God, we want to see Cedric. We're like calling him. <laughs> and then we we truly closed down the bar. And keep in mind, we were starving, did not eat any food. And 
but we were just having the time of our lives. We were the last people there. We kept asking questions of the bartender and like the staff who were working there. And as we were leaving, we decided to pin money up to the ceiling for Cedric. And I was like, I may not have seen you, but we are connected now. Yeah. Also, Cedric has got to be one of the richest ghosts. Yeah. Out there. Unless someone else is just sitting on some <laughs> some like gold bars, some treasure booty. Which there are some. Yes. Some ghosts who, are, who have hidden some money. But it's basically Cedric plus all of the pirates. And these are the yes. rich. They're the 1%. They're the 1%. So they're not paying taxes. But then there was a cynical part of me as I was researching. I was like, wow, the Grenadiers made so much money off of people like me who just want to support a ghost. But what if there's no ghost at all and they're just like keeping the money from the ceiling for themselves? Whoever figured out that marketing tactic should get a raise. Honestly, I applaud you. Take my money. I would join a cult in a pyramid scheme. Take the money from the ceiling. I mean, you got to exactly. make sure that there's some extra spots. There's some attractive areas for I people know. to pin new dollar bills. Right. I mean, I have a picture of mine on the ceiling, but if it's covered, I wouldn't know if it's covered or did they take it down? Right. I wouldn't know. Anyway, I'm still fascinated by the story. I think it's amazing and so cool. We left, although we hadn't seen Cedric, but like it just had this vibe. It just and I think it just had this energy and excitement and Regardless of seeing the ghost, it truly felt like we stepped into a different time. And so when we had this topic of London, I was like, okay, now that I know this little, you know, part of the Grenadier and the story, I want to learn what it is online and hear the stories of people who have encountered Cedric. Because there's nothing better than firsthand encountering something or experiencing something and then reading about it and learning more. Because I Mm -hmm. think it's just that's so fascinating. So that's what I did. So here we are. That's the basic story of the Grenadier, and that was what we had been told. And my research confirmed a lot of it, but added some context and history. And the greatest confirmation was that most articles, basically every article and blog and website that I read, also noted the timelessness and the enchanting atmosphere of the street and then of the public when you walk in. Mm-hmm. So I just think there's some magic happening happening there. I believe it. The Grenadier is a public house, a pub in Belgravia, London located in Wilton Row. It was originally built in 1720 in the courtyard of the 1st Regiment of the Foot Guards Courtyard. So it was a place for the British Army to eat, drink, and convene and and gamble. Then in 1818, it was opened to the public under the name The Guardsmen, and then later was renamed after the Battle of Waterloo in honor of the Grenadier Guards. And the only thing that's like kind of uncertain is when Cedric and the man who's responsible for all the hauntings died because no one really knows. But Mm. what people do know is that Cedric's death was truly brutal. And according to the Internet, he was strung up and flogged. And when they let him down, he was still alive. But he was so disoriented and beaten up that Cedric stumbled down the cellar stairs and fell to his death. Oh, man. Which... I don't blame the bartender for leaving all those gory details out, but those were details that I did not know until I started doing the research. And although the timing and era specific to his death is uncertain, many believe that Cedric died in the month of September because September is the most paranormally active month in the Grenadier pub. A former landlord named Roy Grigg was not familiar with the story of Cedric, but noted that his German shepherd would growl and snarl at the stairway during the month of September specifically. And Roy could never explain it. 
But every time September came to an end, his dog stopped growling. And it was like so much happier, go lucky, like didn't have any problems in the pub. Oh. Over the years that Roy and his family owned the property, they started to piece the haunting together and encountered the ghostly apparition many times while at work. There was one time his son had spotted a shadowy figure on the landing outside of his room and was overcome by fear as the figure grew in size. So, like, I just imagine something, like, small in front of your face and then all of a sudden, like, becoming a human figure. Yeah. And then it disappeared. It's like the creepy, ghostly version of Ant-Man. Yeah. Yeah. <gasps> Scary. Another time, Roy's wife was alone in the pub, again in September, when suddenly a man began mounting the stairs and making his way toward her. And she was shocked. And also, it was a time when the pub was closed, and so she wasn't fully dressed because it was, like, her home. And so she ran back into her bedroom to, like, quickly put something over herself. And when she went back out, this man that she had seen intruding upon her space was nowhere to be found. And it took her some time to realize that it was not an intruder, but a ghost. There were many similar encounters like this. The ghost appeared and then vanished. Then Roy and his family had a guest spend the evening once, and this man had heard of the ghostly happenings and was a little frightful. So he decided to bring his own set of rosary beads and holy water, and he set them on his bed and kind of blessed his room to try to prevent anything happening to him. Mm -hmm. But unfortunately, that seemed to encourage Cedric because this man woke in the middle of the night to find a ghostly apparition of a man standing at the end of his bed staring at him. Ooh. Uh, since that time, many patrons of the Grenadier have spotted a silent spectral being moving slowly across the low-ceilinged rooms. Objects have disappeared or just mysteriously moved overnight. Unseen hands rattle tables and chairs. And a strange, icy chill has been known to hang in the air, sometimes for days. Oh, my gosh. Oh, I don't like that. I don't like to think that you're just constantly moving through. A cold spot. Yes. Because I'm also yeah. picturing it taking over an entire room. You know how in The Incredibles, Mrs. Incredible can, can stretch herself really long? <gasps> I'm just yeah. kind of thinking about a ghost kind of expanding itself just taking up, being like this flat piece of paper, just fully expanded oh. and just taking over the entire room. So you're constantly walking through them. It's kind of like an octopus. Yeah. Yeah. I just think of the Michelin man, like just picture <laughs> the Michelin man in Ghostbusters, just increasing in size and just a marshmallow taking over the entire room. And to add to that, not only are people walking through cold spots for days, there have also been footsteps being heard. And then there's also like during specific times, there's like pacing, almost mm -hmm. like an anxious ghost, mm -hmm. which would be fitting of, you know, of someone who is in debt and doesn't know what to do. How do I win my money back? All of my friends are going to like come after me and like they want their money back, you know. And there is every so often a low sighing moan coming from the cellar, which oh, is, again, very reminiscent of the fact that Cedric was beat, let go, and then fell down the stairs right. to the cellar where he died. Yeah. On one occasion, a chief superintendent from New Scotland Yard was enjoying a drink in the pub when wisps of smoke began to waft around him. He was very confused, so he like looked around and reached towards the source of the smoke, and all of a sudden he had this 
aching pain on his arm and he pulled his arm back and all of a sudden he looked and saw like a burn mark <gasps> as if someone had like put a cigarette Ooh. onto his arm. Oh, that is aggressive. Yeah. But I mean, to be fair, if the ghost was smoking a cigarette, I don't know how this works, but like if he was and he was just like taking it out of his mouth, but this like person reaches his hand towards you, like there, you know, maybe there's some disconnect. He didn't mean to do it on, on yeah. purpose. Yeah. Maybe he was just standing there like, what is this guy doing? Is he reaching for my cigarette? I'm confused. Yeah. And then accidentally burns the guy. Yeah. And then in 1982, the Grenadier was featured on BBC TV's The Six O'Clock Show, and the crew arrived, and, you know, the show was set to air live at 5.30 p.m., and there were some photographers and magazines and all these people who kind of came to the pub to do this airing, and everything went well. It went great, and people loved it on television. But a couple of weeks later, one of the photographers from a magazine returns to the Grenadier with stills from that day and shows photos taken of the restaurant entrance. And in the front window, he points to a fuzzy image in one of the window panes and it looks like a face in the window. And he was like, you know, I just developed these photos and I wanted to bring them to show them to you because this looks like a face in the window Mm -hmm. and no one was inside when he took the photo. And people were like, well, there's some like weird shadows, there's a tree, there's like, you know, it could be a trick of the light, et cetera, et cetera. And so people were like, you know, adverse to believe it. But the photographer was like, I thought all of that too, which is why I blew up the photo and zoomed into that specific thing. And sure enough, it is a clear as day face of a man sporting a dark handlebar mustache wearing what appeared to be like a fez-like hat. And he was very aged, like it looked like someone from a different time. And people believe it's the image of Cedric and that his ghost was staring out the window. Oh, I need to look this up. (laughs) According to a man named Graham Fox, who was the head barman at the time that this BBC show aired. So he was the head barman from 1982 to 1983. He said that after the BBC showing, they were visited by many strange phenomena. I'll read the quote from him. He said, On one busy winter's night at about 8.30 p.m., I had occasion to go down to the cellar to fetch some cigars. At the foot of the cellar steps, to the left, was a wooden lockup about the size of a garden shed that served as the spirit and tobacco store. Built into a corner of the cellar, this structure comprised of two wooden walls and two brick walls. On busy nights, it was almost impossible to get a cigarette break, so I would sometimes keep a cigarette in the glass ashtray in the lockup and sneak a couple of drags when possible. As if from nowhere, Bobby, the landlord's friendly black cat, appeared, which was unusual in itself as he wasn't allowed out of their flat during opening hours, let alone allowed to roam the cellars. As I stood puffing quickly on my ciggy, several things happened in rapid succession. The temperature plummeted. Bobby the cat arched his back and sunk his teeth and claws into my leg above the ankle. And the ashtray, which was on a chest-high shelf to my left, was thrown past my head and smashed with significant force against the wall beside the bricked-up tunnel. I felt a bone-deep chill of fear that I have seldom experienced since. And needless to say, I exited the cellar at the velocity of a Polaris missile. At the top of the cellar stairs, back in the warm ambiance of the restaurant, I felt kind of silly. 
Maybe I imagined it. But as I stepped back into the bar, my boss said, are you all right, Graham? You look like you've seen a ghost. And he did. Oh, my gosh. The stories and encounters with Cedric the ghost and the ghost of the Grenadier are numerous. But maybe you'll have to go visit in September because I want to go back in September because that is when all the encounters are said to happen. And if the hauntings don't encourage you, maybe the fact that it was frequented by many celebrities and royal beings themselves will. Royal yeah. beings. <laughs> Real beings. <laughs> Real living humans. The Duke of Wellington, King George the Fourth, Madonna and Prince William, and Sabrina and Nick Zuli have visited <laughs> <laughs> the Grenadier. That's amazing. I know. I agree with you that September would be the time to go because that's when the activity is the highest. Wait, so so is it believed? Did you say this? You probably did. Is it believed that he passed away in the month of September? That that's yeah. when he was beaten and fell down the stairs? Yeah. Oh, wow. You know, what, what's interesting, too, is that all of the encounters with him that humans have had seem to be fine. Like, there's no malicious intent. Yeah. People just kind of spot him. People are, you know, trying to pay him money back. And yeah, yet he's rich. That employee's dog has a really strong reaction. Cat. Cat. Sorry. I just make everything a dog in my mind. <laughs> that person's cat has a really strong react. Though it could be just, you know, like there's a, a new face lurking around all the time that the cat's like, what are you doing here? Well, I guess there was a dog and a cat. Both. They're two different versions. But yeah, it just it surprises me how strong how strongly opposed the animal is to his presence. And yet. He doesn't seem like a threat to the people who right. work there. Yeah, I mean, although that last story that Graham, the old bartender, said is that when he was down smoking a cigarette, the ashtray was thrown. True. And getting burned with a cigarette butt. Like, almost like right past his face. And the guy was burnt by a cigarette butt. Like, You're right. It does make me wonder, are there certain people that remind him of maybe of the people who led to his murder, essentially? Mm. That he thinks these people remind him of, and that's why he's angry towards them, whereas most other hauntings are more just, you know, maybe residual or benign because it's just him walking through the bar where he's cursed to spend the rest of his days. Yeah, you're making me wonder if so if it's like a very specific spot. If someone's foot touches this one specific spot, maybe where he died, that's where he... If someone spends too much time there, that's when he gets aggressive mm -hmm. and possessive of his one spot. But then it also makes me think maybe, yes, perhaps those people remind him of someone who he gambled with or someone who attacked him. But I don't know. I'm trying to make sense of the aggression. <laughs> or is I'm there another ghost that we don't know of? You know, is one ghost, is Cedric the more negative spirit? And then there's like a more benign other spirit. Just, I mean, there's so much history. This used to be a military, right. you know, stomping ground where they would meet before war and... London has so much history, it could be a number of spirits or beings. Could he almost also judge people based on their intention to or thoughts towards him, too? Mm. So what I'm thinking is the most people, I'm sure a good amount of people who go in here are excited to hear about his story, feel some sort of sympathy and sorrow for Cedric. But are there certain people that are just like, I don't believe in him or I don't care at all? And maybe those are the people that get the negative response Interesting. from him. People who don't have any faith in him. Okay, well, I have faith in him and I wanted to see him, but I didn't. 
<laughs> so now I need to go back. It was one of the, it's I'm one of the sure things he was watching like, you. There's nothing better than stumbling into a haunted place. Truly. The, I, I don't think there's anything better in my life. I agree with you because it's so fun. And then there's no expectations going in. It's yeah. just absolute delight of the possibilities that could happen once you're there. Once you're there. I mean, walking in and seeing it was a magical moment I will never forget. I will tell my children. I will replay this episode for my children one day. I need one of our listeners to just go post up and just sit there at the bar all of September and <laughs> report back yeah. everything that's happened. We need running logs. We need people sort of like when you were at the hotel, the Stanley Hotel, how there was a guest book or a log book for all the mm-hmm. paranormal experiences. We need to set people out into the world to produce these log books, to manage these log books and report back all of the findings and hauntings to us. At every place we've ever talked about. Yes. Good Go luck. forth. Phantoms. Go forth, our, our phantoms, please. On this easy journey. Our, our inbox is essentially a compilation. That's of true. That it is a guest book. Yes, it of is. the world. <laughs> My gosh, I do feel. I don't know. I feel like although there are some scary stories about Cedric, I do feel this real big soft spot in my heart for him. So if I'm feeling that through your words and you telling me about the story, I can only imagine how you felt when you were in there. I felt great. I'll tell you that. <laughs> you know what else makes no me food, just beer? No, yeah, no fear, no food. What? No fear and no fear actually. <laughs> As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match with Indeed. When I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply. Ooh, what listener story do you have? I have a good one. This is, this is all London haunts. Yes. All right, this is from Matilda, and it's called Current Ongoing Haunting. Please help. <laughs> Hi, ladies. I hope this email finds you well and unhaunted. (laughs) My name is Matilda, and I've emailed you a while ago about the experiences I had in my childhood home. And now that I've moved out for the first time, things have picked up again. And I just have to tell you about what's been going on because I'm not 100% sure what to do. First, though, I should tell you that I think my hauntings are attached to something. A giant 18th century Bible (gasps) that I found in an antiques market. I know, right? What was I thinking? (laughs) Honestly, though, when I saw it, I just felt like I had to take it home. When I was a kid, we found one covered in dust in the garage of our house that we had just moved into, and I poured over its golden-edged pages and loved that old book smell that it had. One day when I returned from school, I discovered that my dad had thrown it into a skip and it had been taken away to be trashed. I was heartbroken, and so finding this Bible nearly 20 years later brought tears to my eyes and I felt like it was a second chance. I swear it was basically identical. I probably should have left it there, though. 
The first incident happened when I was home alone in my old war era house in central London, days after bringing the Bible home. I was just headed upstairs to grab a jumper and on my way, I walked past my friend's open bedroom door on the ground floor. Looking quickly in, I saw that my cat Jeff was sitting in the middle of the darkness. The next moments happened in seconds. As I looked at Jeff, I noticed a small, thin girl in old rag clothing sitting just behind him. Her knees hugged to her chest and her head turned to look directly at me. (gasps) In those few seconds that I was looking at her, Jeff swung his head around to look at her too and then pelted it out of the room. Snapping me out of this trance, I ran after him and up the stairs and I hid in my room frantically burning sage (laughs) and telling my friend to come pick up a bottle of wine on the way home. (laughs) The next thing that happened is kind of hard to explain, so stay with me, girls. So to the left of my bed in the corner of the room is a large white Ikea chest of drawers. And one night in my dream, I awoke laying on my back looking at the chest of drawers, which had now been covered in a weird writing that I didn't understand. And the writing had been scratched into the wood. Oh. In my sleepy dream state, I had tried to ignore it, but thought better and decided that I should actually look to see if there was anything in the writing that I could make out. Leaning over the side of my bed... I look down, and there's a long, gray, gnarled hand reaching out from under my bed, scratching (gasps) the foreign words into my drawers. Panicked, I lay back down, and I forced myself not to look at the time, because I knew that it would say three o'clock. I'm sure. And I would lose my shit. I'm still dreaming, FYI. And in the morning, I wake up, feeling shaken. I turned off my alarm that is attached to an app that measures my sleep, and there's a graph that tells you when you're in a light sleep and when you're in a state of REM. Checking it, I find out that I was fully and suddenly awake at 3 a.m. exactly and had gone back to sleep a half hour later. Where is the Bible at the time, you ask? Resting on the top of the drawers. Put me down. A few more things have happened since, like seeing a tall man who I thought was my friend walk into our garden only for my friend to walk out of his room on the opposite side of the house two seconds later with no way of him getting past me without me seeing. My experience a few nights ago really spurred me on to write this email, though. Just as I was drifting off to sleep, I realized that I could hear something else rhythmically and deeply so near to me. I slammed my bedside lamp on, hoping that I would see Jeff, but my room was completely empty. All the while, I could still hear the breathing clear as day. Safe to say, I sleep with a light on, and now I've really stepped up my search to find a boyfriend that so that I can have someone to protect me, or at least who will get possessed before I do. If you know any eligible bachelors in London, holla at you. <laughs> that transition. Even a possession victim? That transition. <laughs> oh my gosh. <laughs> I've attached some pictures of the Bible so you can see just how horror movie prop it really is. <laughs> I know it's easy to say, get rid of the Bible, but I would prefer not to, as it does bring back happy childhood memories. Keep the sage lit, ladies. See you on the other side. P.S. My friend made a good point the other day saying that perhaps it's not the Bible that's haunted, but bringing it into the house may have unsettled something that was already here. Help. I, when she said, I'm so sorry, Matilda, but when you said that she attached photos of the Bible, she said that right after she said, if you know any single men in London, holla at your girl. Oh, did you think her own picture? I thought she was going to have attached <laughs> pictures of her like we are her dating app. <laughs> Here are my five photos and here's the three answers to my the about silly me. questions. Oh, um, okay. 
the question that I have, and Matilda, please feel free to respond to us and let us know, because I know that she's saying that the scratching that she of like the thing in the hand reaching underneath her her drawer, scratching the un mm-hmm. illegible words in a foreign language on her dresser. I'm curious if that scratching in those words are present in real life. And I, I think all of this is real. Like, I believe for sure that she woke up and saw that happening. But I am curious. 100%. If there are words scratched into her dresser that she can take a photo of and find someone. I mean, you're in London. There are so many historians. And go to the public library. Find someone who can who's knowledgeable in, like, historic and foreign languages and try to decipher it. What does it yeah. say? I bet it's Latin words because that's what's always associated with the the, the demon. demonic yeah. entities. Oh, God. The fact that she was awake at that time and for the full 30 minutes. I truly believe that Matilda saw the hand come out from underneath the bed. Yeah, And too. was doing – this hand was doing scratching. But it also makes me wonder if – this could have been something that, yes, happened in real life, but the actual scratching and the words were a mirage almost, you know, where the the entity, the demon, whatever it is, is making a false reality that she's seeing real time to the point where Matilda believes that she's in a dream because it feels it's this like weird blend of actually like real reality versus perceived reality. And she's taking them both in at the same time. And it's confusing. I hate it. I hate it so much. And not to be, I I really wish I could be that person that says, oh, I believe your roommate or your your friend and and maybe it's not the Bible. The Bible just brought something out of something that was already lurking there. But part of me thinks that the other people in the house, because it sounds like there's multiple people in this house, would also experience something if it were just a house haunting reacting to the Bible. The fact that it the Bible's in her room, she's the one that has the connection to the Bible. She purchased the Bible, and Matilda's the only one experiencing something. Makes me feel like it's very much the Bible, the Bible. Some yes, yes, the Bible. It is one. Of, yeah, it is hard to know for certain because I I've heard stories where have bringing a Bible into a house that has maybe a lurking entity really aggresses it. Mm-hmm. And it could be targeted towards Matilda because Matilda brought the Bible in. True. But, I mean, all I can think of suggesting is saging and positive intentions and being like, you can't hurt me. This is my home. You're not welcome here. Right. Yeah. Oh. <gasps> and I don't know about actually cleansing haunted objects beyond. Yeah, me neither. The basic use of. Beyond what I just normally do with the sage bundle I've had for many, many years. But I do wonder, you know how people charge their crystals and cleanse their crystals in the moonlight? I wonder if there's something that you can do with the Bible. Like if you you could put it out on a full moon, if something Mm. would happen. I don't know. Well, I mean, truly, if I were a demon, because I would be a good one, I'd be smart. Um, I would pick like one specific word or page, like random in the Bible to like latch on to. Because then if you sage, like, the outside of the Bible, it's not going to get rid of you. Mm. And then you have to sage every single page. Could you attach yourself beyond an actual physical item? Could you attach yourself to a word or a thought? Yeah. Well, I would try if I were a demon. <laughs> oh, Let's not God. give them any ideas, I was though. just about to say, why are we putting this out there for them? <laughs> They're listening. Shh. Don't listen. Close Don't your ears. Listen. We were just kidding. 
We were just joshing. Just joshing you. (laughs) Okay. This is a story from Ryan, and it's called Old School Haunting. Hey, guys. Love the podcast and have been following since the first episode. I've been meaning to share some of my experiences and force myself to take the time today to write them down. Over the years, I've always known I was more sensitive than the average person and have often sensed various atmospheres, emotions, and people in various places. These experiences have never scared me except for this one story that I wanted to share with you. I am a teacher in London, England, and have been working in an old Victorian school for maybe five years. And occasionally in the break room, teachers would talk about strange events that had happened in the school over the years. Whenever these stories came up, I would make sure that I had a good old listen. Lots of the stories involved an old part of the school building that was no longer used, and this part of the building also included a turret that had a small crucifix-shaped window that looked out over the children's playground. One of my colleagues, Tracy, the school nurse, was a self-proclaimed psychic, and after a lot of discussion, we decided to stay later one evening and go exploring in the unused, locked-up part of the building. Her husband, Andy, worked there, and he and another colleague, Colleen, decided to come along with us. I knew very little about this part of the building, and as soon as we went through the two sets of double doors, the atmosphere instantly changed to something electric, with a sense of something about to happen. It was strange, but I instantly felt the need to whisper, even though I knew we were the only four people there. It was still early in the evening, and so we had sunlight left outside, but for some reason, it seemed to instantly grow darker. The whole time we were walking around, it was as if we were just waiting for something to happen. We decided to go up to the top room, which happened to be in the turret with the crucifix window. As we were climbing the stairs, I went first and began to feel a little bit more brave and began to speak out, asking politely for anyone there to give us a sign or to show themselves to us. The first time I called out, nothing happened. The second time, I began to feel a panic rise in my chest. And then the third time I called out, we all froze as we heard a popping sound from the room we had just left to come up the stairs. It is worth letting you know that the rooms in this part of the school were completely empty and had been unused since the late 80s. Tracy was the last on the stairs, so the first to go back into the room at the bottom of the stairs. She shouted to us excitedly, saying that we should come and look. So we did. There, in the middle of the room, was a broken blue light bulb. As we had already been through this room, we all knew it had not been there before. We thanked out loud to anyone who had done this and were now even more keen to investigate. We were now feeling less nervous and the mood had changed after seeing the bulb. But maybe we let our guard down too soon. Nothing more happened for the next 15 minutes and I was getting irritated. So I began to call out more aggressively saying things like, you're clearly not powerful enough to do anything else or come on, you coward, big mistake. We were now in the room with the crucifix window and it was getting a little darker outside. All four of us were standing still, just listening and hoping to hear something. I called out rudely one last time and then the next few things all happened in a blur. I heard something that sounded like a creaking or a cracking sort of sound. My friend Colleen ducked down. Andy, the school nurse's husband, turns and runs full speed out of the room, down the stairs, and his wife grabs my arm and says, we have to go. The whole time, I'm in a blind panic and my heart was pounding. It takes us 10 minutes to find Tracy's husband, and when we do find him, he was a wreck. 
We asked him what happened, but he couldn't speak. And it took him a full 30 minutes to calm down enough to tell us what he saw. He goes on to tell us that after I shouted that one last time, calling the spirit basically a chicken shit, he saw an arm raised above my head, holding a cane in the air. And when he ran out of the room, he saw the arm swinging the cane down toward me. (gasps) This was the exact same time that I heard the creaking, cracking sound. But what sticks with me the most and what makes my blood run cold every time I tell this story are the words that both he and his wife said they heard at exactly the same time. They both said that they heard a deep man's voice angrily shout the words, Stand still, boy! Just before the cracking sound. I'm so creeped out. Needless to say, we only went back there one final time, and it was the day that I left the school several months later when I went back to that room to apologize. The room I found out used to belong to a particularly nasty head teacher who was a real fan of physical punishment. Thanks for all the great podcasts. Keep them coming and see you on the other side, Ryan. Man, so apparently crossing over to the other side does not solve any uh, character flaws. So (laughs) if you have really bad anger management and emotional regulation issues, then clearly that will follow you, as is uh, apparently evident with this spirit and his angry cane. Yeah. Yeah. My goodness. Wow. Honestly, the fact that that the other guy saw the cane come down, the woman heard along with the other guy the words, stand still, boy, and then Ryan only heard cracking mm-hmm. is amazing because I was so yeah. nervous that th- there was actually going to be like a physical. Physical. Yeah. Yes. Thank goodness. He didn't feel the physical repercussions of that because I mean, even the first thing that happened when they called out to the spirit, the breaking of the light bulb is pretty powerful. Yes. It's clearly being able to manipulate physical objects and and have an effect on physical objects. And Ryan is a physical person. Yeah, exactly. And I mean, Ryan was really antagonizing the spirit too, with calling it chicken shit and saying, oh, you must not be strong enough. So you would think that the action that multiple people saw of uh, raising the cane would result in something physical. But I'm, yeah, I'm so glad it didn't. He didn't have that much power. So maybe Ryan was right. He's not that powerful. Right. Yeah. Luckily. Thank goodness. Or maybe I'm just, I just like to think that there's some higher up power that's watching over all of the spirits. And maybe that, that one spirit of this man got his right to actually physically touch people revoked. Uh huh. And so now he can only manipulate and, and physically impact inanimate objects, but he can yes. just get really angry and he can try to hurt people, but that's his eternal damnation like that's his version of hell is never being able to do what he did in his regular life and take out his anger in the way that soothed him or like felt correct almost to him like therapy you know like at a point you would learn like oh maybe this isn't the right way to deal with things yeah he should he should learn from that yeah you know what, what if he what if he disappeared right then as he's like striking him and then his spirit is thrown into another room and they're like, you failed the simulation once again. You're not no. ready to go back. Start you over. have not learned. Ugh, yeah, old man. <laughs> you know what this reminds me of? I don't know if you read this book, but it's a Ruth Ware book called The Lying Game. It just yes. reminds me of the school. I think we read it. Did we read it for the podcast or maybe that was Turn of the Key? But anyway. We read Turn of the Key and then okay. I read in my own book club 
I think per your recommendation, The Lion Game. The Lion Game. It just reminds me of that school that they all stayed at. Like, I feel like there were ghosts at that school. 100%. Yeah, their yeah. boarding school. Ugh. I just imagine students of the school that Ryan taught at, you know, sneaking onto campus and like going into that unused part of the building and using a Ouija board and contacting the spirits. I feel like if you if you knew about that one room and yeah. clearly that guy is is there and he's present and it doesn't take too much to provoke him. So I feel like there's no. probably the majority of stories that students or people have are true. Yeah, I believe it. Because I feel like most places, especially universities, people are like, oh, it's haunted. And you'll hear like one or two stories and it's like the friend of the friend of the friend said this or there right. was an old student who experienced that. But I feel like this is going to be one of those schools where there's a lot of firsthand accounts. Uh-huh. Which is fun. Fun. I'm glad I didn't progress any further. But please, I just want to hear all your ghost stories. I want to travel through time and, and space and learn all your stories from Europe and London and all over the world. So please email us. Tell us everything. Email your stories to two girls, one ghost podcast at gmail.com. And please rate and review uh definitely subscribe that's super super helpful let other people know about our podcast and for other podcasts that you enjoy listening to do this all for them too because it really does matter when it comes to exposure and numbers Mm -hmm. and and us being able to continue the way that we are yes and join our pyramid scheme (laughs) join our our social media all the things that you hear us say every every week thank you to eric foster and brooke foster at upfire digital and your whole team thank you for editing our podcast and we will See you on the other side. Very spooky. As humans, we're naturally driven by the search for better. But when it comes to hiring, the best way to search for a candidate isn't to search at all. Don't search. Match. With Indeed, when I was looking to hire someone, it was so slow and overwhelming. I wish I had used Indeed. If you need to hire, you need Indeed. Indeed is your matching and hiring platform with over 350 million global monthly visitors, according to Indeed data, and a matching engine that helps you find quality candidates fast. Ditch the busy work. Use Indeed for scheduling, screening, and messaging so you can connect with candidates faster. And Indeed doesn't just help you hire faster. 93% of employers agree Indeed delivers the highest quality matches compared to other job sites, according to a recent Indeed survey. And listeners of this show will get a $75 sponsored job credit to get your jobs more visibility at Indeed.com slash podcast. That's Indeed.com slash podcast. Terms and conditions apply.